0: Man, You guys can have a seat. Stay right where you are in the book of Acts. We're going to just turn the page and start in Acts 2. <clears throat> you've heard a lot. So if you've been here, uh, if you've been coming over the last six months, eight months, nine months, you've heard this repeated. If you were not a part of this, I'll give you kind of the get you caught up part. So we spent a good three, four months, the end of last year, in a group, sitting outside, about 50 of us, meeting together each week and then breaking up into our community groups on the opposite weeks. So every other week on Sunday, then opposite weeks in our community groups. Working through the book of Acts, but not studying so much the book of Acts, but rather the church in Acts. Asking, okay, what happened when Jesus commissioned the church to be the church? Can we start the timer, please? When Jesus commissioned the church to be the church... What did it look like for those that were with Jesus that understood the vision for this community that he was creating called the church? What did they do? What did it look like? How did it change them? What did they value? And so we spent a lot of time together kind of studying that. And so if you were not a part of that, we're going to take a few things between now and Easter and just kind of lean into some major ideas. And so here is a starting point for today, the early church, and we'll put this up. The local churches begun by Jesus' disciples had some very common themes that we need today. One theme is Christian community. So one of the overarching themes in Acts was community. How they gathered together, what they did when they gathered together, and how critical or or pivotal community was to them. And so we're going to look at Acts 2, just kind of work through a chapter and see how it is that they valued this thing. And then, of course, measure ourselves against that. How do we do as it relates to something that they found so important? So Acts 2, starting in verse 1. They were all together in one place. So where does it start? So where does Acts 2 start? So we leave off in Acts 1, Jesus ascending back to heaven. We just heard that from Nicole. They gather together. They're kind of trying to figure out, okay, who's going to replace Judas. They do that. And then chapters two, chapter 2 starts off. They're all gathered together in one place. So Jesus leaves, and they begin to gather together more frequently. So again, here's another note. All together. So in the absence of Jesus, his ascension,
1: the disciples gather Constantly. Now, this group
0: that we're looking at in Acts 2, starting in verse 1, is 120 believers gathered together in the same place. In other words, it looks like this, right? Now, it may not be shaped this way. It may not have been their own building. It was in a home with a large, large upper room, from what we can understand, which was common for the day, but it was a gathering space. And this gathering space is where the church would gather together. When I say church, I don't mean building, I mean the people. The people gathered together regularly, and in the absence of Jesus, as he ascends back to heaven, what they first do is begin to gather together more frequently. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and it divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So there's some amazing imagery this fire and wind, this sound and this presence. And so what we're to take away from that, we read this imagery. Imagery is always meant to cause us to feel something. The author is trying to convey a feeling, right? So Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, the kind of the, the capturing of the first century church, as he writes this, he wants us to feel this. He, as the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, he doesn't want to lose the idea that the sense they were experiencing was a sense of power coming on them. As Nicole just read to us, the disciples are there. Jesus has, has risen back from the dead. They're gathering, and right before he ascends, they ask him a question. So now, now is it the time where we kind of boot roam out and we take over again? That was their version 2,000 years ago of an end times question. They believed that in the end, they would reign again. So they're asking kind of that end times question for them. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know that. But when my Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, you will be my witnesses. He's like, okay, don't worry about that question. Don't worry about the answer to that question. I want you to hear this. When my Spirit is put in you, when the Spirit comes upon you in power, your job is to be witnesses about a living Jesus. Take that message to other people, so there's an empowerment and a commissioning. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, not the point today, but it's worth not skipping so the Holy Spirit empowers this church, this early church, this 120 believers gathered together. <clears throat> and as he empowers them, what happens is that they begin to speak in other known languages, languages of people around them. Now, here's the setting beyond this room, beyond the church gathered. It's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. It's the Jewish season of Pentecost, and they're gathered together again for a festival. They're gathered again for a feast together. And so, this same crowd, roughly a month and a half earlier, is the same crowd on Palm Sunday who had shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna is he, praise him. In other words, who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, just a handful of days later, are shouting, Crucify Jesus, crucify him. So, it's this same crowd. They were in town for Passover, and they're going through, they're back in town. So, a very many of the same people in Jerusalem are gathered together and they hear the people in this church speaking in their own languages so Jewish people who live in different places traveling back in for a gathering like a big citywide feast and so they're coming in from different places Jewish by ethnicity and by religion but speaking different languages and they gather together this church this 120 people gathered in this room who are waiting on Jesus to fulfill what he had promised them, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. They, they get this. They receive this power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus begins to empower them, and they start to speak in other languages, languages known by the people in that area, which is what we'll see right here. So there's two things here. Everyone heard them speak in his own language. Not everyone heard people speaking in bunches of languages. Everyone, it says, and I'm quoting, heard them speak in his own language. So the point here I want you to take away, everybody understood them. When we hear about the Holy Spirit empowering people, or when we hear about tongues in a modern day context, maybe you've been to a church, maybe you've been to a place, and it kind of creates an image for you of what that looks like. I want you to disconnect from what you maybe have experienced and see what it says. Everyone understood them, Everyone heard them speaking in their own language. Some of you were born other places, have a different first language. It would be like you hearing me in the language of your birth, but then so would somebody else, and so would somebody else. All these different languages. That's what's going on here. And it couldn't be clearer. Everybody heard them speaking in their own language. Everyone understood them. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying... Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? There it is repeated. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia down in Egypt, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. That means converts to Judaism. Jews by birth and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. The Holy Spirit empowers this small church. Small by our layer of thinking, right? We feel like a smaller church nationally. We're not necessarily small. We're kind of medium-ish. But we're in Southern California, the land of the megachurch. So we feel small, right? And that's where it begins. 120 people gathered together, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who, because of them, really kind of christianity goes throughout the globe right and here's the starting point the spirit empowers them to live differently be different to accomplish the task jesus has given them and what the first thing we see is that people outside of that room people that gather around them that are not gathering for church they're gathering in jerusalem for a festival we see them here the people inside who all spoke a different language together Hear them speaking in their languages, their native tongues, their birth languages. And it's important to note what they hear. They hear them proclaiming the great things about God. Right? They don't hear them proclaiming something for for somebody in the back row or for the person in the third row back there. It's not that. They hear them proclaiming the good news or the gospels or the mighty thing, the mighty things of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice up and addressed them. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, like in other words, all you visitors, right? Let this be known to you and give ear to my word. So Peter is going to step outside this room and he's going to share the first preached gospel the first evangelistic message since Jesus ascended, the first preached message of the church. And let's just kind of take a step back and remember who Peter is. Peter's the guy that makes you feel good about yourself every time he talks, right? He makes lots of mistakes. He gets some really stellar things right, and he gets some epic things wrong. He's all over the map. He makes me feel better, right? He denies Jesus three times in one night, two times to little girls like that are not a threat, right? And then he's going to go out and he's going to preach a gospel. We know this passage. It's going to to end in thousands coming to faith. The change, the Spirit of God empowering him to proclaim this gospel. So he's going to start with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to pivot towards Jesus. So here's what he does. Verse 15. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Think 9 a.m., right? It's early in the day. Nope, that's not it. Okay. Verse 16. But... This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be. Notice it says, in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, meaning those end days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So in the last days, speaking of the era of the church, this is Joel writing hundreds of years before Jesus is born, proclaiming in the last days, meaning in the days after Jesus, live, dies, resurrects, and ascends back to heaven, that God will pour out, because God is speaking through the prophet Joel, right? God speaking, Joel using kind of the speaking for God, I will, meaning God will, right? Will pour out my spirit in the last days. The last days for the prophet Joel, the last days as said by God, the last days as quoted by Peter, the era of the church right in the time when the church is after on the other side of the gospel that's the last season of life before Jesus returns and makes everything right in the last days he says here's what I'll do and he quotes God as saying I will pour out my spirit on all people and the all people part's really important doesn't matter if you're male or female doesn't matter if you're slave or free, doesn't matter what your birth language was or your, you know, your economic status. I'm gonna pour out my spirit, God says, on people. That will be the last days. You will see the church empowered uniquely and differently, different than ever before. We spent all of last year and some and most of the last three years in the Old Testament. Last year we did a survey of the entire Old Testament. If you were in community groups and stayed on track with the reading, we actually read the whole Old Testament. And the idea was that, that God is leading a group of people towards fulfillment of a promise, a promise about a savior, the promise coming to fulfillment in Jesus, which doesn't happen at the end of the Old Testament. Stopped, in fact, it stops 400 years short of that. This cliffhanger waiting, kind of like in between things, and you're waiting for the next movie to come out. It's, it's that like, how are they gonna wrap this story up? Except it's savior, Jesus. It says, and when Jesus comes, he will create a people, and they will be empowered by my spirit, says God. Peter continues. He's still quoting the Old Testament here. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass, and this is important, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, Peter moves from the Holy Spirit, empowering the church back to salvation, talking about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So, let's put this in context. So, God creates. God creates humanity, designs humanity, makes us to be worshipers of God. And Again, I say this all the time, that doesn't mean just singing songs like when we worship in here, although that's worship, but that our lives should be worship, our lives should bring glory to God. That we are designed to be that, and working outside of that is working outside of the design, right? It's trying to off-road a mini truck. You're just not built to do that, right? Minivan, how about that? (laughs) Whatever, all right. Mini truck, I grew up in the 80s. I mean, we had those. So, anyhow... Working outside of purpose, you're not supposed to be that. We're supposed to be worshipers of God. Our lives are supposed to bring glory to God, but we all don't do that. In fact, we choose to go our own way, often to bring glory to ourselves or or misplaced focus. We choose to go our own way, not God's way. That's sin, right? That we go another direction. And because of that sin, like infidelity in a relationship, it it brings damage to the relationship. and, And because of that, we become separated from God. But God, in his love, wants to restore that relationship, wants to heal that relationship. So God, as a fulfillment to his promises all throughout time, captured in scripture, brings his son, brings our savior, God become human flesh in Jesus. And Jesus lives the life you and I were called to live, but we fail, all of us. And then he dies a death to trade his life life for ours, paying the penalty for our sin because he's sinless, and then is buried in a grave to cover our sins. Three days later, he resurrects from the grave because again, the grave brings forgiveness, but the resurrection brings new life, right? That he doesn't leave us just forgiven and broken and messy, but not accountable, but rather he brings us new life. That in the resurrection, you are empowered to live differently. You don't have to be defined by your sin, Your weakest moments don't have to define you. Your worst moments don't have to define you. But rather, Christ's Christ's greatest victories can be what defines you. So the resurrection overcomes that. As Jesus ascends back to heaven, he pours out his spirit on the church to empower us, not just to be different and live differently, but to accomplish the mission of the church. One of the greatest things that happened 500 years ago in the Reformation was a shift to remind ourselves that our faith is for, for the glory of God alone. Right, you'll see that Deo Gloria slogan for the glory of God alone. Like our salvation exists not for us, it's not just for our benefit, though we benefit. It exists that we might glorify God as we were created to, that we might do what God has created us to do, be who God has created us to be, and join the mission of the church. So God does this, and he pours out his spirit on the church. So just to recap, here's Acts 1-8. Jesus speaking right before the ascension, but you will receive power
1: when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be- So here it is, power and responsibility. As Jesus tells of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit... We're going to move quickly through the rest of his message.
0: Men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So Peter says, listen, you saw him heal people, raise the dead, feed crowds. You saw him do the miraculous. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. In other words, in the fulfillment of God's promises. But then he looks at him, he says, you crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men now listen to this jesus says you jerusalem people you're listening you're the ones that killed jesus right it's a very focused message because he's speaking to pretty much the same crowd you he says verse 24 god raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it so peter preaches that god overturns their conclusion right You crucified and killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead. Like you were doing this, God did the exact opposite. What an indictment of the Jewish religious leadership there who shouted for the death of Jesus, right? You shouted for this, God trumped that by raising Jesus from the dead. You're so far off in what you believe that God overturned it in the resurrection. Verse 25 Paul quotes David, or Peter quotes David. He says, For David says concerning him, meaning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence, tying Jesus to the Old Testament promises of the resurrection, right? Verse 29. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades or to the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. So another prophecy of the resurrection is Peter's whole point. The Old Testament, the Bible, the Jewish Bible, they wouldn't have called it Old Testament. They still wouldn't, right? We have the church's writings in the first century. So we have Old Testament, New Testament. They have the Old Testament. And They saying, listen, your scriptures have always pointed to this moment that Jesus would suffer and die, but also be resurrected from the grave. So I want to put this on the screen, resurrected life. The Old Testament points towards a resurrected Savior, Jesus,
1: and a resurrected life for us, the church. That if he's going to empower us, we should be changed. If
0: he's going to raise from the dead and give us new life, that implies we should be transformed. We should be new. So Peter is preaching this message of new life, that Jesus rose from the dead and the church is given new life, and that we are to live in new ways. Verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So again, his eyewitness account of the living Jesus. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having, him, uh, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So having received the promised Holy Spirit, Peter, Peter is now back on This new life for believers. Even talking about, like listen, David said this too. Like as they wrote about this, the Old Testament prophets, all the writings point to this new life empowered by God's very own spirit living in us. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen to that message for a minute. Imagine you're the ones who did this. Imagine that. Imagine your first century Jewish religious leadership who shouted for the the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And, And Peter is proclaiming a resurrected from the grave by God Jesus. And he's like, "You, this Jesus, you crucified. This one, you shouted for his death. God raised him from the dead. Can you imagine how you would hear that? Can you imagine that? You, our tendencies would be either fight that, defend ourselves, right? Or that would be deeply convicting. You mean I thought in defense of my faith, I was calling for the crucifixion or the death of a false prophet in this man named Jesus. But I was wrong. Jesus, God raised him from the dead to show he's actually represents God. Can you imagine how focused, how pointed. This message is let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here's this moment as Peter proclaims the gospel to this crowd, he is pointing to the things that they saw. He starts with what they're seeing now. They're, they're seeing an empowered church when he's pointing to the things that they saw, the things that Jesus did while he was alive. To his death, the thing that they shouted for, they, they called for, the thing they wanted, and then his resurrection that so many, especially this 120 people in this church, all saw. Saying, listen, listen to what God has done. You chose wrong here, but you have another option here. As he had just said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right, That Jesus died and rose again, and that he calls us to live inside of that. That he calls us to be in him. That we can be covered by his death. We can live in his new life. That he is alive today, not just resurrected 2,000 years ago, but alive today. That's Peter's message. And he pours out his spirit on the church, on those who believe. Now listen to the response. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter, so you're saying we crucified the Messiah we've been waiting for. We called for his death. The very promise of thousands of years of God's promises fulfilled in a person, this long-anticipated Messiah, that, that we called for his death, that we not only didn't listen to him, but we crucified and killed him. What do we do? Peter, what do we do? They're like, okay, we were wrong, clearly. What do we do? Verse 38, we use this verse a lot. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. He says, turn away from where you were headed, away from Jesus, turn towards Jesus. Turn away from your sin, turn towards God repent and be baptized. Now, baptism has significant meaning. Jews practiced baptism, but not on themselves. They would baptize outsiders, Gentiles, non-Jewish people that wanted to convert to Judaism. One of the first things they would do is go through a baptism process, kind of cleansing them from being unclean by birth, unclean ethnically. They would baptize them before they would walk through bringing them in. And so it was kind of an entrance into the community of Judaism. But here's what Peter is saying. You who are Jewish, who are here, because it's a Jewish audience in Jerusalem celebrating a Jewish festival, right? So it's a Jewish audience. He is calling them to baptism. They understand this. Baptism means entrance into a new community. They know what that means. It's inclusion into a community of faith. And Peter has said, you missed it so much, you need to be baptized into a new community, the church. You see, baptism has symbolism of death and resurrection. For those who do immersion, all the way in the water, in, out, right? For others who do pouring or sprinkling, it has this imagery of cleansing, but the purpose is to include people into a community, to bring them into the community of the church. We got a phone call like a couple of weeks ago. I ended up talking to the guy about early this, this last week and he lives out of the area and he wanted to have his son baptized here because he's got family in the area. And I said, well, but you don't go here, right? It's like, you don't go to church. here. like, where do you go to church? Well, we're still trying to find a home church. I go, well, here's the deal. Baptism is upon a confession of, like you're, you're saying your son wants this, right, and so there's his confession of faith, which we're not clear on right now, but it's also inclusion into a church. You're being baptized into a family, and he couldn't get that, and I know a lot of times we're just, that sounds hard to understand, like, well, baptism, it's my confession of faith, but it's not, it's inclusion into a community. I said it'd be like when I got married, I, didn't ha- I handed a ring to my wife, right, said vows to my wife. I didn't like, say vows to her and hand a ring to somebody else. I know, crazy. I didn't have a better metaphor at the time, right? <laughs> I said, so we wouldn't baptize you as you're not becoming a part of the church, right? Like you become a part of the church one of two ways. You kind of come to faith and get baptized here, or you, maybe you're a Christian that moves from somewhere else over here, but you've already been baptized, so we don't baptize you a second time, right? It's because I get in an argument with Lisa, I don't have to get new rings, right? Which would be super expensive, right? So anyhow, <laughs> but it's inclusion into a community. Like you're part, you're joining, you're saying, listen, I want to be a part of Generations Church. He's calling them to leave behind their understanding of Judaism and become a part of Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the same spirit that started this conversation, the same thing you heard, the empowerment to be. Christ's people. You will receive that. Yes, you're forgiven, but yes, you're also empowered. Like there's a promise that goes with baptism, and you're baptized into a community. Now, don't miss that part. There's a community of people gathered together, praying, waiting, and God meets them in community and empowers them in community, not individually. They're not all scattered all over the place. That's not just practical because God can do whatever he wants to do, right? It's intentional. They're a community. They're gathered together. In the absence of Jesus, they bond together. They go outside and they proclaim this message. And the people hearing it, that are convicted by this. They're like, okay, so how do we respond to this? And he says this, repent and be baptized. Like, turn from what you're doing and become a part of this community. Become a part of this. Not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but also for the empowerment of the spirit that you will be led to live in a new way. So baptism, we'll put this on the screen. Baptism has
1: gospel imagery of death and resurrection, or again, if you do it differently, cleansing. And maybe you feel like your sin is
0: so great that you struggle with, can Jesus forgive it? Here's what Peter's saying in this moment. The people who killed Jesus can still be forgiven. That should bring us comfort. Because of all the bad things I did, at least I didn't kill God, right? I didn't kill God's Savior, the promise. I didn't miss that point. I mean, I missed it for many years, but okay, you get the point. Your sin is forgivable, my sin is forgiven. Right in Christ, all of us are forgivable. We're forgive. Our sin doesn't separate us, as much as it is being outside of Christ that separates us from God. Now, right there's no sin too great that Jesus can't forgive. It verse thirty nine, he says, "For this promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself." And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Probably a passage we could talk about at length in our context some other time, right? We'll just leave it there. He said, this promise is for you, for your children after you. This is the promise. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. Okay, we know that. It says, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here, here's where we kind of tend to go south. Added. Well, added to what? Right? Added to that community. See, we think in overly spiritual terms, well, like added to heaven. They weren't added to heaven. Right? Well, added to, you know, they were written in the book of life. They, that was written long before we were alive, right? Like God already knew this. What were they added to? They were added to the local church. They were added to the community. They were baptized in the community. There were about 3,000 people that day that were baptized and added to them. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the story starts in community, is empowered by the Spirit of God, moves to this moment where they hear outside the people inside speaking in their own native languages. All of them who speak all different languages hear this group speaking as if to them in their first language, their native languages, and they don't understand it. Some mock, some ask questions. So Peter goes outside, he preaches this gospel about how this has always been the promise and opens this door. Listen, repent and be baptized. So turn from not following Jesus to following Jesus, and then you're included into this community. You're empowered by the Spirit. Come and be a part of us. It says that thousands came to faith that day, that thousands joined this community. Now, understand this. In our Bibles, we have these little subheadings that help us find things when we're looking through it. We're not sure, like, hey, where does that story exist? Where where is it where Jesus, you know, feeds the 5,000, so it will say Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's helpful. Luke doesn't break here. This isn't a new scroll, a new idea. Luke didn't write subheadings. Luke goes from that to the very next sentence. Here's the very next sentence. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Who? The thousands of people that join the community. They all do. They, uh, they all devote, which is a strong term. Not just show up every once in a while. They devote themselves... So the apostles' teaching, I'm gonna call that scripture. They devote themselves to scripture, right? Now the apostles were teaching it orally and starting to write it down. We have it all written down, our version of it, scripture, right? So the apostles' teaching means studying scripture. Fellowship means community. Breaking bread means eating meals and also has implications of communion, like we do, but eating meals together. And, and the distinction is, in the first century, they did communion over a meal. It wasn't a separated thing like we do in the church today. There's reasons for that, but that's for another day. But breaking bread meant having meals, sharing life together, not just the sacrament, and then the prayers. Notice definite article the, right? Not just devoted themselves to praying at home by themselves when they feel like it, they devoted themselves to this community and the prayers, the gathering times where the church would gather together and pray together. Like tonight, we're gonna gather together, we're gonna have a meal. I heard spaghetti, I would assume there's gonna be bread, but we're gonna call that breaking bread, right? There's a meal, we're gonna gather together. Thank you, all right. (laughs) Make a liar out of me on the stage here, so anyhow. So get some garlic bread, and you will fulfill the commandment. No, so, all right, so the gathering, the idea is gathering, having a meal. Devoting ourselves to that fellowship, that community. And praying together, that there is something unique that that Scripture speaks to that happens when we pray corporately or collectively as a body. And so join us tonight at 5.30 for a meal, 6 to 7 for worship and prayer. But here's what he says, apostles' teaching, fellowship, bringing bread, and the prayers. In other words, gathering together. Now, if we were just going to take that one thing, Acts 2.42, famous verse in Scripture, obviously used all the time for all kinds of purposes, but let's just, for a minute, if you were to die right now, stand before God, and God says, how'd you do on that one thing, right? How'd you do devoting yourself to scripture, to community, to having meals with one another in the church, and to the corporate gathering, praying together? He's like, all right, scale of one to ten. Not, not your heaven or hell question. We're not asking that. How is your faith we're going to take a quick snapshot. Like when you go to the doctor and they take your weight and your blood pressure and your temperature. Like just a quick snapshot of your health. How's your spiritual health? Your devotion to scripture. Your fellowship, community with one another. Meals, sharing that life with and gathering to pray. How would that land with you? And you don't have to answer. It's just, but it's something to consider. Verse 43, it goes on describing the community, the church. It says, an awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is an amazing phrase that is repeated throughout Acts. They were together and had all things in common. Not only did they gather regularly, but they had all things in common, right? I kind of imagine like, Rob has a good day, I get to celebrate that with him. Stephen has a tough day. I lament that with him, right? You guys have a kid, we celebrate. You guys lose a loved one, we mourn. They had all things in common. Yes, there were financial implications of caring for needs. We're going to see that in a minute. They shared all all things in common. They lived this life together, loved one another so much. They had a shared journey together as a community.
1: So we'll put this up. Together and all things in common. Those empowered by the Holy Spirit shared life. Or what I do at home,
0: we make scripture about either Sundays or what I might do at home, or what we disconnect all of this. Every time we turn around, we see the church gathered and having things in common, and yet we will so often try and live our life siloed and apart from one another. It's no wonder we struggle in our faith because we're trying to do it a way it's not meant to be done. Well, back to my very imperfect minivan off road comment, right? You're not supposed to do it that way, right? You'll break the system. It's meant to be done in community. This isn't community. This is a worship service. How many people do you know in the room? How many people we have a real conversation or pray with today? Not when I pray or Stephen prays or whatever. How are you with this community? Do we have all things in common? Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. This feels like a step so far removed from us right now that it bears not even diving into. Like we got to back up and go, kid, they had all things in common. We got to get that one right before we start thinking of the implications of caring for one another that deeply and that selflessly. So just think of that as like a step two. We're going to stay on step one. Like they had all things in common they gathered regularly, shared, they had a shared life. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, day by day, it says. How often do you think that was? They gathered together. I mean, day by day, right? And they were Jewish in Jerusalem. So yeah, they continued going to tell, trying to figure out, okay, listen, this is supposed to lead to Jesus. Eventually, they break off from that because Judaism doesn't want to follow. But functionally, modern day terms, they went to church together. And then day by day, they gathered in their homes and had meals together, celebrated life together, had a shared life with one another. When we hear about small groups, we think of them as options. And yet more ministry happens inside of a small group. community. I said this to a small group, to a community group this last week. More happens in that group than happens here. More life change, more transformation, more growth happens there. Because you can be real. You can be honest. You can, you can lean into things. You can get to know one another inside of 12 people. But when we hear about a small group, we think, do I need that? Do I want that? Not, did Jesus call me to that? Even flip that over, what about maybe they need you? Maybe they need to learn from you. You're like, no, I'm all jacked up. Well, maybe you need it, then whatever, right? Whatever. (laughs) That's where you're supposed to be all jacked up. That's where you're supposed to be able to talk about that, live that life. They had all things in common. They didn't mean they just had good things in common. They had all things in common. And they gathered day by day to share this journey of life. So the end of last year, we spent time working through the first century church and just asking, where do we relate to this? Where where are we good at this? Where are we not good at this? What do we have to do in this year, 2022? How do we have to pivot, move things to where we're more like the church that God created us to be? One of them for sure is community. That we need to learn how to live this out better. That we need to see ourselves as needing everyone else in the room. That it's critical that I need you and you need me. Not as a pastor, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. That we can't do this thing alone, we will never succeed. That one of the first outcomes of the Holy Spirit is giving them a miraculous sense of community. They were no less selfish and sinful than we are. It's the spirit that draws them together into community. And that's what we need. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you have built this for us. We thank you that you show us what we are to do. We thank you that we get to see the the, the impact, the outcome of such deep, well-lived community that they devote themselves daily to to scripture and community and, and and meals together because that it doesn't have to be all that serious it just it could be that fun and praying together help us to live towards that there's more obviously but help us to lean into community this year in a different way, in a unique way, where we begin to give of ourselves and and receive of other people in our lives. That the lies of the enemy wouldn't get in between that, like I can't share this part of me, or I don't need them, or they don't need me. That we would stop believing those lies and we would start leaning into what you have made us to be, a shared community. So Jesus, help us
1: Help us to be that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.